So just how real are Aaron Judge, Cody Bellinger, Alex Wood? We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 14th. Happy Bastille Day. It's show number 28 of the 2017 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire about breakout players, some second-half pitchers, the trade market, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Jose Quintana to the Cubs, Madison Bumgarner back to the Giants and more. And the American League has Jock Thompson looking at the irreplaceable Mike Trout, the replaceable Jose Quintana in the White Sox rotation and more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our playing time commentary, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at trade deadline ripples in Philadelphia and the Mets. In our frequent flyers commentary, analyst Alex Becky looks at St. Louis first baseman Luke Voigt and Milwaukee starting pitcher Brent Suter. In our weekend pitcher matchups, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Jeff Samarja, the resurgent Anibal Sanchez, and other weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about degrees of Kelvin. How the save situation affects a closer's performance. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The second half, well, actually the second 45%, is underway. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports... Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League news, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here and getting ready for some exciting times as we head toward the trade deadline. And speaking of the trade deadline, it uh, looks like that ship has started to sail anyways. Jose Quintana of the White Sox has been traded across town to the Chicago Cubs, shoring up their rotation a little bit. What is the potential here for Quintana to improve his fantasy performance in a better team, and what is the effect on the Cubs' rotation? Well, you know, in fact, Quintana started off the season very, very poorly, and uh, his stats now overall are being uh, being severely influenced by a bad April and a bad May, but he was really very good in June, uh, five games in June with a 1.78 ERA, uh, struggled in one outing in July. So, uh, But over the last seven games, had, had an ERA below three. So Quintana looks pretty good. It looks like he's kind of righted the ship, so to speak. And the other thing, of course, to note is, is moving uh, moving to the National League should probably help Quintana. Uh, he'll have batters who aren't familiar with him. Uh, he'll, have, he'll not have to face the DH. Uh, all of those things make a little bit of a difference in, in where you expect a, a uh, pitcher's ERA to go. So uh, overall, I think this is a good move for Jose Quintana uh, as far as his fantasy outlook goes. Uh, in terms of the Cubs rotation, uh, the Cubs have struggled at the bottom of their rotation. Uh, Kyle Hendricks is coming back soon from the DL. And so you've got Eddie Butler and Michael Montgomery, who may be kind of on the bubble uh, as, as we head into these next few weeks. Uh, Montgomery is certainly going to get the start uh, today, th- this weekend, uh, as we start back into games and, and may hang on to his spot, I would see Butler as the more likely person to lose the rotation spot at the moment. 
but those are the two guys that I think I'd be a little bit leery of in terms of their uh, their likelihood to remain in the rotation, at least until there's another injury. I was looking at Quintana's weekly stats, uh, Nick, and uh, boy, on July the 2nd, 15 strikeouts in a game and uh, four walks. And I'm a little bit worried about the walks. It's uh, Except for one zero-walk performance, he's giving up four walks a game, and sometimes the strikeouts aren't really there to offset it. I think this is going to be pretty interesting. One other thing, and I don't know how much we should emphasize this, but when a pitcher moves to the National League, he gets an easy out every ninth batter, right? He gets to pitch against the other guy's pitcher. Right. Very definitely, and that 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 can that should help overall in terms of the the overall performance. Certainly easier pitching to another pitcher than it is pitching to the American League DH. So a uh, little bit of an uptick for Quintana, especially for a uh, uh, little bit of a jackpot for guys who play in leagues where if he's traded out of the league, you get to keep him. Uh, that happened to me, actually. I I had Stephen Vogt of Oakland uh, languishing on the bench, got sent to Milwaukee and four home runs already. Uh, we expect San Francisco Giants left-handed ace Madison Bumgarner to be back this weekend, going to start the team's second game after the All-Star break against San Diego, according to manager Bruce Bochy. Uh, Jock Thompson was on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So first, do we expect Bumgarner to step right back in as an ace-level pitcher? Well, the thing to remember here is shoulder injuries are always troublesome, and so uh, that's the first thing to think of, and concerns were highlighted when he got hammered in a rehab start in San Jose last week. Four innings pitched to nine runs on nine hits, including four home runs in that first rehab start. Next rehab start was better, uh, but didn't have full command, struck out eight, uh, gave up only two hits, one un, one unearned run, walked one, uh, 86 pitches, 58 strikes. So velocity was only in the mid to high 80s. Got into the 90 only a couple of times. But uh, Bumgarner said he treated the game like it was the end of spring training, uh, concentrated on hitting his spots, and he was satisfied with uh, uh, with where it came out. So if he's satisfied, I know the San Francisco trainer was out there and he seemed satisfied as well with the performance. And we got to remember about this shoulder issue. Of course, pitchers, shoulders, it's always troublesome, but this is not a pitching-related injury. He crashed his motorcycle, and uh, of course, any injury is an injury, but it wasn't pitching-related, so I think we can bump up our confidence level maybe one notch. Uh, If someone in your league is worried about Madison Bumgarner, I'd grab him at this point. Uh, now, with Bumgarner back, what happens with that San Francisco rotation? Matt Kane is, uh, is head of the bullpen out of the rotation to make room for Bumgarner. Uh, Kane has a 5.56 ERA, a 5.61 expected uh, earned run average after 17 starts, and uh, pretty much uh, kind of knew he was going to be bumped as soon as they got a chance to bump him. Uh, he could take some second-half starts, but uh, obviously Kane isn't someone that uh, – that you want on a roster spot at this point. Um, likely to be passed over by younger prospects after the trade deadline uh, and almost certainly during the September roster expansion. So uh, uh, Matt Cain headed to the bullpen. We just finished talking about the trade of Jose Quintana. The Giants, as we know, truly a zillion miles from contending this year, maybe looking at a rebuild, although they have a good core. Is there any chance they do go for the rebuilding process and dangle Madison Bumgarner as a trade chip? I don't think so. I um, uh, Bumgarner is is really a part of that of that core, and so I don't think they'll do that. They've apparently told teams they'll take offers on anybody except Bumgarner, uh, Brandon Crawford, and uh, Buster Posey, uh, and all of the other guys are, are free game if they get the right offer. So if anyone leaves San Francisco, it could be Johnny Cueto, it could be Jeff Samarja. Uh, uh, both have been pretty bad this year. Cueto has name value and reputation as a playoff performer. 
Uh, and and always, some, sometimes we've seen a, a tough level from Cueto, and he returns to being the kind of ace performer that he that he was in the past. So uh, Cueto may look very attractive to some teams. Uh, Samarja is at least intriguing for a team that's looking to shore up its rotation for the stretch and for the playoffs. And San Francisco may not want much back in terms of prospects. They might be happy just to get out from under those two really gigantic contracts. Cueto was signed through 2022 for $21 million a year. And Samarja signed through 2020 at $18 million a year. So that's a, that's a lot of money. Uh, and if they could get out of one or both of those contracts, they might be very happy doing that. I think San Francisco would actually be fairly happy at those rates, given um, baseball's salary structure these days, but neither of them is pitching anywhere near worth that. So I think you could be right about that, Nick. The, both of these guys, based on their current performance, are being overpaid. San Francisco's got some big contracts uh, uh, coming up. Bumgarner's only making $12 million, so uh, sooner or later he's going to want to raise. Maybe they want to just get some contract money off the books to, to get themselves reorganized a bit. Now, speaking of uh, Jeff Samarja, in the starting pitcher buyer's guide column, Stephen Nickrand looked at base performance value leaders over the last full season. I find these things interesting, Nick. He goes back to the uh, post-All-Star break period last year and up to the All-Star break period this year. So you get a, a season's worth of data, but it's spread over the last half of last year and the first half of this. So you're getting a bit more recency than you would be just looking at 2016. Interestingly, among these base performance value leaders, when you look at it this way, Jeff Samarja. Yeah, but uh, Jeff Samarja, interestingly, among the BPV leaders, but not among the the uh, actual the actual performance leaders. And that's the thing to take a look at here. A four-plus ERA since the second half of last season, uh, and a lot of owners have been avoiding him. And I and, and Stephen says not, not to continue to do that. Uh, he's had some of the best skills during the last 12 months uh, in baseball, a 9.0 dom, a 1.8 control, 45% ground ball rate, 135 BPV. So Jeff Samarja has really been pitching very well. Uh, and his pinpoint control has been backed by a 33% ball rate, a 32% hit rate, and a 14% home run per fly rate are the reasons he's kept the ERA up. And both of those are, are really kind of unlucky numbers. So there's some bad luck involved, and, and we would expect Samarja to begin to settle down at some point and pitch like he was prior to the the beginning of the second half of last season. So, Nick, it sounds like, based on what Stephen's saying, that maybe Jeff Samarja should be a trade target both in real baseball and in fantasy baseball. Yeah, I would think so. If I were, you know, if I were a certainly a uh, uh, a major league baseball uh, GM looking at guys that that might rebound easily, Samarja would be one of those I'd take a look at. The St. Louis uh, Cardinals finally got Colton Wong back, uh, activated him from the disabled list on Tuesday, and optioned Luke Weaver and shortstop Alex Mejia back down to AAA. Wong's return raises some questions. How are the Cardinals going to deploy their roster as we head into the stretch? Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today. What's the story in St. Louis? Well, you know, toward the end of Wong's DL stay, Matt Carpenter began playing second base to open some playing time for Luke Voigt. Uh, so Wong might platoon with Voigt, with Carpenter shifting back and forth between first and second. We're just going to have to watch and see um, how St. Louis plays it at this point and how they use those uh, the, their players. They've got several players who can play those middle infield positions, and the question is, what are they going to do with them? And what should we expect from Colton Wong now that he's getting back into the lineup? Well, before getting hurt, his average of 301 and uh, expected batting average of 287 were career highs. Uh, PX of 93 was also a career high, but uh, his expected uh, power index of 47 was his lowest, aside from his short first uh, major league season. So 
uh, it's a little little bit of a question here as to what we can expect from Colton Wong. It's, it's someone who's worth watching as he was putting up some nice numbers. Uh, on the other hand, uh, maybe a reason with that expected PX of 47 uh, to expect him to regress a bit. Yeah, that's the thing that worries me is that big gap between his power index and his expected power index. We don't normally see such giant gaps. Basically, it's double, right? I mean, he's, his his PX right. of 93 is double at 47 pretty much. And uh, when you get those kind of huge gaps between uh, expected levels and real levels, I think that's always a cause for concern. I know these expected levels, Nick, they're a bit fuzzy because there's math involved and it's a lot of projection involved and trying to figure out what a certain kind of outcome is worth. But, you know, usually if you had a guy with a 93 PX, you'd expect to see an expected PX of 80 or 101 or something like that. But if his expected power index is half his real power index, I think, like I said, that's cause for concern. Yeah, I think it is. That's that's the kind of thing you look and say there's some regression likely coming here. And I, I'm not sure I want to invest a lot in the uh, in the current performance level. Mind you, if you need a batting average boost, you could do worse, I guess. Uh, Luke Weaver, meanwhile, was a very highly rated prospect. He's come up here at Baseball HQ Radio a couple of times in various contexts. So what happens to Luke Weaver and to uh, Mejia, the shortstop, with this demotion? Well, yeah, Luke Weaver is going to be back. I think there's no question that Luke Weaver will be back before the end of the season. Uh, and certainly as soon as, as sure, if there is an injury or something, Luke Weaver could be back very quickly. During the short time that he was... Uh, was up. Luke Weaver uh, pitched three innings, yielded three hits, one walk, no runs, two strikeouts. He's the Cards' number three prospect. He looks like he could be a very solid pitcher in that rotation. Uh, certainly someone to keep your eye on. And when he comes back up, certainly someone you might want to consider investing in if he's going to be in a starting role. Uh, less clear, I think, about the future for Mejia. Uh, as we noted, the baseball HQ noted when he was called up, he's a defense-first utility infielder. Uh, went three for 14 with one home runs at the time he was up. Uh, not someone I think that uh, you look excited about placing on a fantasy roster unless you're in an extremely deep lead league and have just got to fill a, fill a hole. Yeah, I thought so too. And I looked at uh, this Alex Mejia, I, I came to the same conclusion. Uh, we mentioned Luke Voigt, uh, Cardinals first base prospect who had been playing reasonably well. Ryan Bloomfield's going to look at him in the playing time commentary this week. As we move on, Brandon Gavitt of BaseballHQ.com, Nick, had a pretty interesting research article. Actually, I think it was under facts and flukes, the spotlight kind of thing called change points and this is a kind of a graph of player performance showing inflection points where where the performance suddenly jumped up or fell back and uh trying to use that to figure out whether a player's worth getting uh he mentioned of quite a few players but let's look at a couple of them starting with ryan zimmerman yeah ryan zimmerman what what you what he pointed out about ryan zimmerman ryan zimmerman has been been putting up uh, mvp numbers since the start of the season and the question is is that going to continue and what the, what the model looks at, looking at Ryan Zimmerman, looking back over his entire career, is that he hasn't changed a whole lot since his debut in 2005. His, his BPV, and that's what this change point thing is really looking at, has peaks and valleys. But he always returns to a very solid average kind of skill performance, uh, average BPV of 51, and everything kind of falls back to that level eventually. Uh, and because he'd been performing at such a consistent level for so long, there's a really precise estimate of who this guy is. Uh, BPV between 45 and 55, uh, 90% confidence interval in that BPV. So it's reasonable su to suggest that he'll have a stretch of weeks where he performs as he has at an MVP caliber level. But some weeks where he won't do a whole lot with a bat and, uh, uh, and, that, and then do that doesn't mean that you panic. He's going to return to that, to that level eventually. So 
Uh, Ryan Zimmerman has been playing very well. Uh, I think what this article points out is that this is Ryan Zimmerman. He has these kind of peaks and valleys in his performance. And I think that's the cautionary note here when you look at this chart with all these peaks and valleys is that over the long run, we can always be fairly confident about a guy's performance level. I remember doing this years ago with uh, Derek Jeter's batting average. And over the career length, it, it stabilized at about 305. And it was very stable once it got established in his third year or so. But if you look at short runs, 12 weeks, 5 weeks, like that, naturally there's going to be a lot of volatility. And so um, I think the caution here is even though we know what a guy's skill level is over the long run, it doesn't really guarantee that much over the short run. Right, very definitely. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that we need to – what we know about the long run is what that, uh, where we expect the guy to, to wind up. And uh, so you're right, the short run is, is one of those real guessing games that uh, makes fantasy baseball – in front of the interesting. Now, a really interesting chart in this was about uh, Andrew McCutcheon of the Pirates. Of course, a very high-level player for many years. Then all of a sudden, he hits he hits one of these inflection points, one of these things where everything drops off. You still see the variation in the uh, performance above and below the median, but the median itself has dropped, and the the peaks and valleys are still there, but the peaks are lower and the valleys are lower. What is uh, Brandon Gavitt saying about Andrew McCutcheon based on this information? Well, what, what he's saying is that if you look at that chart, look at the, the peaks and valleys, there was a definite drop in skill level around the start of 2016. And his BPV dropped in half from 70 to 35. Uh, and, and he kept, and he's been, been maintaining that level uh, throughout all of last season and even into the beginning of this season. Uh, and then suddenly, recently, something started to happen. Um, his last four weeks have been 100 plus BPV. Now, that's a short. It's a small sample size, given what we're looking at in this kind of a change model, but there may be some reason for optimism here. Um, certainly a couple of weeks at 100 BPV level, uh, that may not be a lot, but what, what he's suggesting is that uh, if he begins, watch, watch Andrew McCutcheon coming out of this all-star break. If he posts BPVs in the 30s, then the uh, change model is going to chalk that up to a hot streak and keep him where he is, but... If you're a risk taker and want to see what happens with McCutcheon and his owner's tired of him, now might be a time to grab him and see if he's going to jump back up to that performance level that he was showing before the beginning of last season. And I guess if you're if you're a McCutcheon owner, now's a good time to kind of hang on and see if what he was doing over the last the last couple of weeks uh, continues. It's I think more than the last couple of weeks, Nick. Uh, I looked back into mid June and in 19 games. He's had a 1,300 OPS, five home runs, 13 RBIs. I think this looks like he might be recapturing some of that old glory. And if he did, boy, Nick, uh, Andrew McCutcheon would be a real fantasy asset for the stretch. Yeah, he could indeed. And so as, uh, as he suggests, someone to keep an eye on uh, over these next few weeks to see if he does indeed get traded uh, and to see if his owner may be, uh, may be willing to deal him at this point. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League. Could it be a couple of exciting weeks to come? Should be very interesting indeed. Thanks, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. How was your time off? Hi, PD. It was pretty good. Went to a new place in Mexico. We hadn't been well-kept secret, so I'm not going to mention it here. <laughs> Excellent plan. Yeah, there's 
tens of thousands of people looking for alternative Mexican vacation spots so you don't want to be overrun. Uh, the Angels down in your neck of the woods got some very good news. Mike Trout will be back as soon as games resume on Friday night at home versus Tampa. Something you noted in your playing time today coverage at BaseballHQ.com on Friday. Obviously, fantasy owners want to get Mike Trout back into their lineups, but how does this affect the entire Angels roster going ahead, especially in the outfield? Yeah, it's funny. Eric Young played really well uh, immediately following Trout's injury. He, he replaced Trout on the uh, on the roster. Uh, his overall stats right now are he, he batted 260 with a 336 on base percentage, three home runs, and, and eight stolen bases over 96 at-bats, which is pretty decent production. Uh, he even won a few games with some dramatic uh, late-inning hits early on. But he's 7 for 42 since uh, 615. He's no longer playing every day. Uh, the Angels quietly uh put him on waivers, uh, he, which he has since cleared. So he's been outrighted to Salt Lake City. Uh, ben Revere is going to stick around, and he's going to continue to function as the fourth outfielder and uh, try to chip away at some of Cameron Mabin's playing time in left field. I picked up uh, Ben Revere off of our free agent pool in the Tout American League, uh, but he... Uh at the time was kind of a last resort sort of player, but uh, is there any chance Revere actually picks up some playing time? You know, actually there is. If you look at, say, the last three weeks, um, he's actually probably had his best stretch of the of the season. He's hitting over 300. Um, and and maybe at the same time uh, uh, has has really fallen off. He was, he was another guy. Him and Eric Young were really hot right after Mike Trout uh, went on the DL. You couldn't get either of them out of the lineup, but uh, Ever since uh, late June and all the way into July, uh, Maven's gone ice cold, and uh, we're seeing a lot more of Revere these days. So I think there might be more of a battle there, at least in the near term, than a lot of people might think. And what about the uh, Angels' rotation? Uh, that has been their weak point all year. They actually hit pretty well when uh, Trout was gone, but they still are having a lot of trouble finding uh, innings from their pitchers. Yeah, uh, I, the Angels still claim they're in the wild card hunt, and they are if you look at the standings. But, of course, they're, they're fighting a lot of other teams. I think they're about fourth or, or fifth team in line now, and there's three or four other teams close behind them. Um, obviously, getting Trout back helps, but that rotation has so many question marks. Uh, um, it, it, it's A lot, I think, is going to depend on whether they can get any of Shoemaker, uh, uh, Tyler Skaggs, Garrett Richards, and Andrew Heaney back, and what condition they're in when they return, because uh, this angel rotation is very shaky, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if they get blown out in these first two, three weeks uh, following the All-Star break. I'm interested in this whole American League situation with so many teams, theoretically at least, within a game or four of the uh, of the last wild card spot. But in some instances, they've got a lot of teams to gut past. And sometimes I think people overlook the the fact that it's like it when in your own fantasy league, you may look at yourself and say, "Hey, I'm in sixth, but I'm only seven points out of second kind of thing." But you've got fifth, fourth, and third all have to cooperate with you to allow you to get by them and it, and it the more of those teams are between you and the holy grail the less likely it is that the grail is going to be yours yeah exactly and, and, and it's interesting i think as a team both from a fantasy and a, and at a and a reality standpoint you really have to look and see okay what's my path to this um not so much in in comparing yourself to your teams but what what are your realistic chances of making that wild card or or winning given all the teams that you also have to compete with. And uh, and like I was saying, I'm looking at the ra- the Angels' rotation, and I, I just don't see it unless you know a, a miracle happens with the guys they have on the DL right now. 
Over in Boston, uh, they're playing very well. They had big hopes for Pablo Sandoval, and no joke intended on big hopes for Big Pablo, but he's finally run himself out of rope in Boston. They DFA'd him, and we've touched on this in the Red Sox third base issues back in June. Pablo Sandoval's gone. They also cut Johnny Peralta. What are they going to do at third base, Jock? Well, you know, I think they're still looking for an immediate solution uh, there. They, they just know it's not going to be Sandoval, at least not for now. They they could conceivably, if nobody claims him, he's been designated. They can send him to the minors. He might come back. But uh, there's going to be a problem with that even that we'll touch on a little later here. Uh, you mentioned the Red Sox that signed Peralta. He's gone after 40 at-bats. They obviously didn't think he was going to do it. Um, so they're likely hoping that another option falls out, uh, maybe of some of the trade talks they're having in the run-up to the July 31st deadline. But for now, it looks like, uh, based on the third base rotation I saw uh, on the games just before the break, it's going to be Suwai Lin uh, getting most of the at-bats there, probably being spotted by Devin Marrera. I was talking about this, Jock, with some friends of mine who are Red Sox fans, and they seem to think that this is a very strong indication that uh, the Red Sox are going to be in the trade market at third base because they can't really go into the playoff season with what they have at third base. You mentioned Lynn. They've got some other guys who get in there now and again. But uh, don't you think that this is an indication that there's going to be some trade activity by Boston? Yeah, I really do. And I think there's a lot of options that are available. There's a, there's a lot of guys I'm looking at in AAA. You've got uh, Hamer Candelario, uh, Cullen Moran, all, who, all of whom can play third base and all of whom are hitting pretty well right now um i i think there's i think there's plenty of options that they can pursue um the other option that obviously we should talk about a little bit is that uh, uh rafael devers their prized third base prospect has also just now been promoted to triple a paw tucket one of the reasons i don't think sandoval is going to go down there and get a lot of third base time um Devers has hit really well in double-A, and yeah, he doesn't have a lot of high minors experience, certainly no triple-A experience, but if he doesn't skip a beat and continues to mash the way he has thus far this year, and the Red Sox don't find another solution via the trade market, they might turn to Devers, say, in late August or sometime in September. In the meantime, if they don't do anything, it's Lynn, as you mentioned, and Devin Marrero probably getting some playing time at third as well. Either of these guys have any interest to fantasy owners? Well, the one interesting thing about Lynn is that he's walking a lot. He's only had 39 at-bats, but I'm looking at his walk rate now. Right now. It's 15%. He's very patient. He's got good plate skills. Um, he's actually made pretty good hard contact, but overall, historically, he doesn't hit the ball with a lot of authority, doesn't hit with a lot of power. I'm not sure how long uh, um, his, his 435 on base percentage is going to last. And Sandoval, meanwhile, has been, uh, he cleared waivers. He's going to be down in the minor league somewhere. Is there any chance he can play his way back into contention for a return to Fenway Park? Well, I think the problem is you've got Devers now at Pawtucket at third base, unless I'm missing something that Boston is thinking. Uh, I think you got another guy, Michael Chavis, another third baseman uh, playing for Boston down at AA, who's had a very good year, a surprisingly good year. Um, I, I just don't know right now where Sandoval fits in. Uh, I don't know what Boston's thinking here is, but it uh, doesn't look good for, for uh, Pablo Sandoval in Boston anymore. Jock, as we speak, uh, a news report coming across. Uh, Yankees general manager Brian Cashman has announced that Michael Pineda has been diagnosed with a partially torn ulnar collateral ligament. You know what that means. Tommy John surgery has been recommended. Michael Pineda, one way or another, is out for the year. How, how impactful is this for the Yankees and for fantasy owners? 
Well, it's really impactful uh, if, the, if the Yankees uh, want to uh, go for it and, and try to catch the Red Sox or, or take one of those wild card spots that they're, they're in charge of right now, um, they're going to have to find a replacement for them. Now, fortunately, um, they have a few names in the minors. Chance Adams has pitched uh, real well. A couple of other guys have pitched well off and on the last couple of years. Uh, um, it'll be interesting to see what the Yankees do. Uh, they will also be looking at that trade market. Yes, I think they shall. Uh, Pineda's season ERA is 439, which is pretty respectable, and an 8.6 strikeout per nine dom rate and only two walks per nine. He was pitching pretty well. This does not look good. Uh, they say there's a chance if he doesn't get the Tommy John, he might be able to pitch a little later on in the season. Maybe he could get that stem cell thing or the platelet-rich plasma thing. But uh, unfortunately for the Yankees, one of the best starters in the free agent market, Jose Quintana, has already been dealt. Let's talk about Jose Quintana going to the Cubs and who's going to replace him in that White Sox rotation. Yeah, my guess right now without um, uh looking at the up-to-the-minute announcements from the White Sox uh, front office, and they're coming fast and furious right now, as, as I think most of our listeners know. Um, swingman David Holmberg is the most likely candidate to move back into that rotation, and, and he hasn't been awful there in the six starts that he's made already this season, uh, although there's a pretty big gap between his uh, 307 ERA and 540 expected ERA, so he, he may not be long there. Um, Mike Shears mentioned this uh, in what I thought was a pretty prescient uh, all-star break column uh, in his playing time uh, tomorrow in the AL Central. Um, the names Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez are going to enter this conversation at, at some point. Uh, they have their own issues, but it's an interesting situation to watch. Of the two, Giolito, Lopez, uh, either or both? Well, it, it, they're both interesting in that uh, Giolito, as you know, for a long time, uh, when he was in the low minors and even even uh, at the beginning of last year, he was considered one of the best pitching, one of the very best pitching prospects, if not the best in the minors. Uh, um, he struggled last year and his status was knocked down and he struggled this year. His ERA at, uh, at AAA is 4.98, but he keeps showing these flashes. His last start, he struck out 10 in seven innings. Uh, couple of starts before that uh, 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 struck out seven uh, um, he, he he has he has problems with consistency right now and a lot of people still think he has real upside even though he's scuffled in the high minors uh, uh, and and, and uh, last year um, this is a guy I, I, I don't think he's going to be the first call up of the two um, just because of his inconsistency they want him to work on uh, on his uh, his release point and his uh, his mechanics, I think he's still got a little way to go. But it, it it pitchers are such that if he reels off three good starts in a row, it wouldn't surprise me to see him up with Chicago. Jock, I was a little bit surprised to see the news out of Tampa. Outfielder Colby Rasmus is leaving the team for what have been called personal reasons and will not return to baseball for the rest of the season. The story I read, and this has not been confirmed by the team or by Colby Rasmus, is that he's just getting down because of all the injuries that he's been suffering over the last year or year and a half, and he just wants to go home and be with his family and try to get away from baseball for a while, and you can hardly blame him. But it's certainly a loss for the Rays. Uh, Rasmus had been pretty productive. He's on the DL again with that hip problem, but he was batting 281, which has got to be 50 points better than they expected. Nine home runs, 121 at-bats. Matt Dodge wrote this up in playing time today for BaseballHQ.com. How does Colby Rasmus's decision affect the Rays' outfield? Yeah, this decision came out of the blue, so it's not really uh, 
clear right now. I, th I think over the long term, Malik Smith is the big winner. Uh, even though his playing time looked pretty stable given his performance to date, uh, uh, given that uh, Kevin Kiermaier is still out and probably going to be out for another month. Um, the immediate winners right now look like Peter Borges and Shane Peterson, who have been playing reasonable, reasonably well in part-time roles. They've been trading off that third outfield uh, 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 slot with uh, Rasmus and Kiermaier out. But you'd almost expect another shoe drop to drop here just just based on the fact that we're three weeks away from the trade deadline. Perhaps the Rays are going to make another move. They're in the wild card spot as well, and it just wouldn't seem like they'd want to play for another month with uh, uh, one of these two guys starting every day. You mean Borjos or Peterson? I, I think you're right. I, I think that they consider themselves a playoff team, and with their pitching staff, I believe they think that they can go quite a ways in the playoffs because of the uh, advantage that they have with a relatively deep pitching staff, especially when you look at some of the other teams that are going to be in there. Is there anyone in their system that could get a call-up to fill in an outfield? Yeah, there's a guy I really like and a lot of other analysts like too, Jake Bowers in AAA. He's been playing right field. He's he's awfully young. He's 21 years old. Um, if you look at his numbers, they don't jump out at you. Um, 267 batting average, eight home runs. He has stolen 11 bases and only been caught uh, once. But this is a guy with really good plate skills, and some people think that uh, that 20 home run power will come. His plate skills are such, and, and, and they jump off the page even right now, 48 walks to 70 strikeouts and 303 at-bats. Uh, it's possible that he could come come up and hold hold his own. Uh, over the interim, and maybe the Rays want to take a look at him. Um, I'm, I don't know if they'll make that move, but he would be the most logical choice if they're going to dip down into the minors right now. And finally, Jock, uh, in Cleveland, uh, they take a hit to their roster. Hot-hitting Lonnie Chisenhall has been sent to the DL. He had a calf problem in the very last game before the break. The Cleveland has called up Tyler Naquin to take Chisenhall's roster spot. I'm sure that means Naquin will get at least some of Chisenhall's vacated at-bats. Yeah, I think he will too. The, the, the Indians are at least hedging their bets there. They also have Abraham Almonte available, but Almonte hasn't been very good at all this year. He's hit just 240 with one homer and 100 at-bats in a limited role. Naquin's interesting. He, he's been kind of a forgotten guy in this organization. He, he hit 296 with 14 homers last year and had a pretty good spring and then was demoted just 17 at-bats into the season, essentially because of poor center field defense and the fact that the Indians had signed Austin Jackson. So now the Indians have Bradley Zimmer in center field. I think they might see if Naquin can hack it uh, uh, as, a, as a corner outfielder. He has some contact issues, but he has good patience and he's shown decent power in the past. And uh, it looks like Chisholm will be back before the end of the year, but uh, he was playing so well, this must be a big disappointment to, to Cleveland, of course, and to his fantasy owners, of which I am one. Yeah, he really was. Uh, Lonnie Chisholm was a longtime prospect, and this looked like a real breakout year where he really put a, a few things together, and uh, his numbers across the board were pretty impressive. And uh, those calf strains, lower body strains, can be really problematic if they're not allowed to rest and heal completely, so I guess we'll have to wait and see, but it is a blow. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll catch you again with American League News next week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature interview, it's Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. I don't believe what I 
just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third base coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home play. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it to four and I am stunned Bill I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes and a lot of sports but this one might top almost every other one Baseball HQ Radio Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to once again be joined by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Todd, two times in a week, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Yeah, I've talked to you more than, uh, well, I don't, have a, I don't have a wife, so I can't, I can't say I'm talking to you more than my wife, but uh, yeah, i talked to you a lot lately. <laughs> yeah. We talked in the round table earlier this week about a lot of players, uh, so we don't have to cover that ground again, but we did kind of gloss over the two most surprising breakout hitters, and I'd like your take on them. First, of course, the Yankees' Aaron Judge. How sustainable, how projectable is his first half performance as we look at the second half? You know, oh, man, um, been doing a little bit of looking at Judge just because, you know, more as much out of fascination as it is, uh, you know, true ana- you know, pure analysis. Looking at at heat maps and 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 what he does against different pitches and all that sort of thing, I can't I can't find a hole, and it's just it's blowing my mind. I, I can't I listen. I mean, it's what it, it's barely over half a season. I know he had some time last year, but I'm I'm looking at the uh, at where he swings and his, his hot zones. I guess he can beat up he can be beat up high a little bit, but it's just so consistent. You look at his spray chart and you think you're looking at a switch hitter. I mean, he just he goes to all fields. He's equally adept at hitting breaking pitches and hitting uh, fastball. So you know, I, you know, it started because you know a guy that tall, you know, you, you know the old Richie Sexton thing. You'd think that there there has to be holes in his swing that they can exploit, and maybe it has to do with the the way they're calling the strike zone, calling it lower. I don't know, but there doesn't seem to be an area. I guess you can exploit him high in a way, but if you miss his his best zone is is high over the plate. So you got to have pinpoint control. You know, they're just people afraid to. Sometimes you're afraid to go to their their weak zone because it's so close to their hot zone. So I, you know, I mean, obviously, I, well, I don't say obviously, but you'd think that the the the, the batting average over batting average in play over 400 is coming down. But you know, he can't keep up this pace. But the landing spot is still going to be pretty darn good. I mean, I'm not a scout. I just I number scouting. I can't see where to attack the guy. He does draw a lot of walks as well, so for a young player who was kind of uh, iffy in that department last year, he certainly has improved that. I was curious when you mentioned the, the strike zone, because a lot of people are saying it's taller and thinner than it used to be, and a tall, thin strike zone seems to help a guy who's a tall, relatively rangy guy. Taller than it used to be, but not as tall as it was back when we used to hear strike at the letters, when you know there'd be some of these guys that would just challenge uh, Judge with heat up in the zone and see if he can catch up to it. Now the you can't go up quite as high as... You can go up higher than you could a couple of years ago, but you can't go quite up as high as you could 20 years ago. I mean, I, I, Sexton might be the... You know, he was sort of in the borderline between when they really started to lower the zone a bit. 
but um yeah so i i just um i'm you know i'm looking at the i'm looking at it at it here now and up and away is where he you know and, and two and he used to say that if he doesn't get pitched there he won't learn how to hit there too and i think he being so tall he can reach those pitches obviously so I just uh, and, and and the fascinating too thing thing to me too is the breaking pitches. Usually a, a hitter this young, you know, you're, you're given you're you're sacrificing one to catch up to the other, or you're you're sitting on the on the breaking pitch and not gonna be able to catch up to the fastball. Or, you know, you're cheating on the fastball and you can't get to the to the breaking stuff. He's hitting them all with equal aplomb. It's just uh, you know uh, the best thing to do is uh, you know. Uh, go down to the AFL with us so you get to hear scouts talk about these guys in person because you know we some of us were tuned in to judge a little bit he didn't look all that great in the AFL last year when we saw him but then you know you can't judge on the you know, end of his season that sort of thing but all the scouts were raving yeah the one thing I wondered about having seen him myself down there was uh, the idea that a tall hitter like him can be tied up and when I was watching him it seemed like his strike uh, his swing was relatively long again something you'd expect from a guy that size but he's he seems right. to have really shortened up the swing and and he's generating this tremendous opposite field power that you mentioned yeah it it looks like anybody who's facing him is going to be in for a rough ride that said can we expect another 25 home runs whatever the 30 that he got pre all-star break is prorated to that's close to 60 that seems like a pretty tall order yeah i don't know my, my black box says 21 so where, where does that put him in the mid 40s, which, you know, is still a fantastic season, but you know he hasn't. I mean, we're we're, we're past halfway to say that he, you know can you actually say he has to hit a slump? I mean, he doesn't have to do anything at this point, but you'd like you'd think at some point there will be a, a little bit of a dry spell. You mentioned the walks; they're not giving him quite quite the bonds treatment, but I I have seen enough uh, and play enough that there are some teams, especially now that the Yankees are sputtering that they're pitching around Judge a little bit. So he could, he, his pace could, if that continues over the second half, if the Yankees don't pick up the pace, you know, he could get a little bit more of the Bonds treatment and just not get as many homers just because he's not seen as many pitches to hit. So, you know, he, I don't, I don't, he hasn't shown thus far that he'll expand the zone, that he'll get antsy, but who knows? I mean, the guy's in a triple crown pace. Uh, you know, he's a kid. Will he get antsy down the stretch and expand the zone you know, to try to keep the stats up. I don't know. Sometimes that's the knock on really good hitters uh, who have the terrific eye at the plate. I'm thinking of Joey Votto. For years, he was drawing all those walks on base percentage, 425, 430. But people were ripping him because he wasn't getting enough RBIs because he refused to give in to a ball that's off the plate trying to drive in a run. And he would take that walk and sacrifice the potential RBI. I thought it was uh, exactly what he should be doing. You're, the team is better off with runners at first and second than it was with runner at second alone, even if the hitter at the plate is Joey Votto. So it, I guess one of the questions is, will the Yankees, especially if they keep uh, struggling to score runs, are they going to start leaning on Aaron Judge and say, look, kid, you got to start uh, swinging at, at more pitches because we need you to drive in those runs? I don't know. The Yankees are a smart organization, and I, I don't think, because I think I, I, they're not that far away. I mean, they're having a little bit of a rough year. They're pitching. Well, actually, they're having a rough stretch. They were they were a month ago they you know World Series you know the American you know, before Houston went goofy hot they were you know they were they were the Houston a month ago so who knows what can happen over the second half but I think they're smart I don't think I don't think they'll ruin the kid long term 
but I do think that the, they're a smart organization and they'll stick with the plan and they'll be just as happy with them doing this. And there's, there's enough other hitters on the Yankees that, 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 will, that will get it back in gear. Just they, went, they have been, you know, it's the break now. I don't know who knows how they'll come out of the break. But they were, you know, they, they were really sluggish heading into the break. And, and uh, you know, Judge, he, I think he hit two homers this past week. So even with amidst all these walks, he's still selectively, you know, pounding the mistakes. The other big uh, hitting story in the first half was the Dodgers' Cody Bellinger. A lot of home runs there, and he got a late start, as a matter of fact. What do you think of his chances to be as successful in the second half as he has been so far in the first? Yeah, you know, again, number scouting. I see more holes in his swing. Now, what's interesting in both of them, we kind of alluded to this in our talk on Tuesday with Gene with Gene McCaffrey, the All Star, uh, the All Star panel. Both these guys have strikeout rates at thirty percent, right around thirty percent. And there was a time where that was kind of the red flag. I don't know what your filter was, but you know, thirty percent for me was bad. I was nervous. I didn't want anything to do with those guys. Now it's it's not good, but there's no shame in striking out. Thirty percent's nothing now. You know, it's not, well, I'll, I'll take the homers for that 30%, whereas previously was, man, he's striking out 30%. He's going he's gonna to go in a slump. And so, so both of these guys at least, I think, have the, the, the mental uh, confidence, if you will, that they can continue to strike out. I think you know, they, they both prefer to strike out fewer, fewer times, but I don't think there's pressure on them to, to reduce the strikeout rate. But with Bellinger, I see... Uh, I see more places he can be beat, at least so far. He seems to be, you can you can get him up higher in the zone, which makes sense because he's got that long, loopy left-handed swing that we, you know, we saw in the home run derby. Um, he, his hot spots is low, low and outside, actually. So, uh, and, and right down the middle of the plate, like most most every other hitter. So I, I think there's more of a chance. And he's already gone in a couple slumps, Bellinger. I think Bellinger, you know, when he when he's locked in, will be as good as anybody, but I think he's he's the typical guy that will go into some slumps uh, with some excessive strikeouts. Judge strikes out a bunch, but I don't I don't I don't know because he goes to all fields and he can handle so many different pitches. I don't see a huge prolonged slump. I think we'll just see a I don't know if it's so much aggression, but just slowing the pace a bit. Whereas Bellinger will see this will see more streaks. Players who strike out a lot also sacrifice some of their RBI opportunities. Clearly, if you don't put the ball in play, you're not going to drive in a run. So is there some sweet spot for a guy like Judge where you say, I'll take 30% home runs if I'm getting 5%, I should say 30% strikeouts if I'm getting 5% home runs? Yeah, I think, I mean, at this point, yes. I mean, as a fantasy player, uh, I, 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 can't, I can't use that filter anymore. I sort of have to just look at the numbers as a whole. And I mean, we we talked Sano a little bit when we uh, when we did our roundtable. He strikes out a ton, but he's also a, a run-producing machine just because of all the homers and the and where he is in the lineup. So I'm willing to take those, you know, the the counter. I know I'm jumping all over the place here, but the counter to striking out a lot is there's so many more runs scored on homers percentage-wise than in past years that if 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 the sacrifice is more power. You're probably making that you're making it up in the runs and RBIs because it's just teams aren't manufacturing as many runs. Homers are up, everybody knows that, but runs aren't up proportionately. They're up, but they're not up proportionally. Part of that is because of all the strikeouts that there's not as many guys on base. So if more runs are being scored via the homer, I think at the end it's it's probably pretty close to a wash, and you're going to get your RBIs and runs scored from guys hitting homers. 
Todd, you made your name uh, largely in this business by having uh, a projection engine that is one of the best in the business. Uh, but in general, when we look at guys like uh, <laughs> Cody Bellinger, we look at a guy like Aaron Judge, how difficult is it for you as a as a projection engine designer and a guy who's doing projections for a living to assess these kind of out-of-the-blue breakouts by such young players? See, the, the projection part of it is easy. It is what it is. It's when I it's when I become a player and or someone asks me, you know, uh, about a specific player in this nature. That's the hard part. I mean, you know, it's you take the MLE and you you do the translation and the and the engine spits out what it spits out. So I guess the question then is, you know, do you do you override it? Might be the, you know, how much is that? Maybe the the underlying question here is, do I override the system on certain players? And I guess I, what I like to say is I'm willing to be wrong. And that the judges and the Bellingers are are the exception, not the rule. And you sort of have to be uh, accept the fact that you're not going to get Bellinger, you're not going to get Judge, but you're also not going to get the other ten or twelve guys that did not have the success that they did. So you know the numbers are, are fairly straightforward. Now the problem with MLEs is there's some kind of a there's there's a bit of a bias in that. The, these guys are at the upper end of the prospect scale, so their translation might be a little bit better. So there are times where I may override the system a bit and and give them a little bit more uh, punch. Of course, the players, you know, you do that with a Byron Buxton and you get burned. So there is some subjective uh, nature to it. But I let I let the system do the job. You know, I constantly look at it to improve the MLEs, to see if there's something in the end, especially with all these new metrics now, with the uh, with the exit velocity and that sort of thing, that maybe you could uh, you can make a, a change to it, you know, that, that isn't captured by the system itself. But it really comes down to philosophy is do you wanna do you wanna take the chance on an Aaron Judge? Do you wanna take the chance on a Cody Bellinger? Uh, or do you wanna play it safe? Um, you know, one of one of the things I found and I don't know how it is in your leagues, but I found that people that take a chance on a on a judge are taking other chances too, and they're not all going to pan out. So if if uh, you know the, the 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 guy that has Aaron Judge in your league may not be winning the league because he may have taken a couple other chances, she may have taken a couple of other chances too. At the end of the day, they're just a wash. They have a good team, but they may not have the best team. Yeah, I think the same is true when you look at the advertising of the various projection uh, providers before the season starts. The ad always says, we found Aaron Judge last year. We found whoever, you know, and they brag <laughs> about the accuracy of certain projections. But, of course, they're cherry-picking, and they're taking the ones that worked out, and they're not mentioning the gigantic gaffes that they made, like, we projected Brian Buxton for 80 stolen bases or something like that. And and uh, from the marketing point of view, it probably pays you to take a lot of chances because then you can brag about having hit the ones you hit and ignore the ones that you missed. But is there a lesson in when we look at a player like Judge or a player like Bellinger next year when we're looking at prospects and trying to find the next Aaron Judge or the next Cody Bellinger? Yeah, I think the, the main lesson I kind of alluded to it before is I'm not as scared away by strikeouts as they may have been in the past. So I, I'm not going to category, categorically dismiss a, a prospect because he's striking out a bunch on the farm. Um, it's mainly, and it just has to do with there. It's 
it's not it's not a, it's not as taboo as it as it was previously. So that that's sort of my the number one lesson now. And then it's just you know we we have all these fantastic measurements at the major league level. Some of them are being done in the minor leagues. So you know you know I you know we're not I don't know how accurately we'll know the 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 launch angles of the minor leaguers. At some point we'll we'll know everything. But I, some of the stuff we're learning up here. I don't know what we can learn down there, but I think one of the lessons, I think the ultimate lesson is going to be, and this is sort of true with any player, but I think, I guess, especially a minor leaguer, is how quickly in season do you admit, admit you know, air quote, admit you were wrong and and make the adjustment. And that then, then I think we, we can start to use some of the, the, the newfangled exit velocities and that sort of thing once we learn how how stable those are or how fast how fast they become reliable. So I'm probably going to be conservative coming into the season, but more aggressive uh, at, at a certain point into the season, changing the initial expectation. Is the assessment process different when you're looking at young breakout pitchers? Yeah, you see, that, that, that that's tough, especially as I've alluded to now is with this home run environment and, you know, we don't know the cause at least, I, actually, I think it's I think it's a confluence of a bunch of things. You know, everybody has an opinion. I think everybody's right, and that it's a confluence of all these different things. But anyway, the point being, uh, right now, you know, we look at the you know the, the Lima filters, the old neuron chin and Lima filters, had to do more with walks and uh, walks and uh, strikeouts, and lesser lesser to do with homers. Right now, it's all about homers. If you can, if you can control the home runs, you're going to be successful. The trouble is figuring out which guys are. Are, are actually controlling homers by their stuff, which guys are just serendipitously doing it because they're throwing the sort of pitches that can't be elevated, and and which guys are just you know unlucky right now. So uh, I, I, the, with with home pitchers right now, it's more about homers, and it's so tough to figure out what you know the minor. I know we have minor league park factors and that sort of thing, but there's still the, the sample sizes and the, they don't stay a lot of time at a level. That sort of thing. It's really hard to get a judge. So yeah, pitchers. Oh, it's it's still you know what? It still has to come down to walks and strikeouts. But I I used to sort of hand wave home runs just because they were so hard to judge based upon parks and the whatnot. But I I'm paying a little more attention to how many home runs a young pitcher's giving up. Given the outsized influence of home runs on the general environment, plus the uh, effect of uh, of home runs on strand rates and therefore on ERAs. Uh, is it coming to the point where we need to pay more attention as fantasy owners to park effects and looking at a two pitchers who seem relatively equal and giving a bit more of a nod to a guy who plays in Oakland or somebody rather than somebody who plays in Atlanta? Yeah, see, I've always, you know, I've always been a park effect guy, but what I think, you know, in, in my my theory, I think we've talked about it. I know I've written about it. In, is that there's a couple different types of fly balls now with the a fly ball that you a pitch up in the zone and you hit underneath the ball, or a fly ball that you drive. Now, park effects emanate from a certain, I don't know, ratio of these two types of fly balls. So where I'm going with this is, I think park effects are going to change. I think that with, with if, if there's more of these fly balls that are being driven, uh, I think that we, we're going to see different park effects, especially if there's certain teams that take to this more than others. I'm looking at the A's with Alonzo, and we, we think about you know what a what a you know dearth for home runs the Coliseum is. But that park effect, that park index may change, and the park's the same. But if there are other players, and, and, and you know, we got Healy, and you got some of these other guys that 
I think are, are selling out for the power. I think we may see that the uh, I think we may see the park change, not so much because of the park, but because of the the the, the process, because of the approach, might be changing. So um, and there's just more of these driven fly balls. You know, with the with the plane swing is on a is on the same plane as the as the you know the balls. Uh, dropping and the plane swing is elevated the maximum transfer is energy when the when the swing is on the same plane as the ball and i think that we're getting more of those fly balls so i think we're going to see a switch a switch in park effects more so it's not so much paying attention to them as it is seeing where we're seeing some of these changes what what parks are changing isn't there a way to isolate the uh, home team out of the park effect calculation by only looking at teams that are visiting and then compare how many home runs they hit in park A versus how many home runs they hit in parks B through whatever, excluding their own home park? Yeah, that, that's that is that's that's part of that, that that that's what is done. That's what's done now. It's not supposed to be the quality of the team, but uh, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of a perfect example. If um, it, a park like Fenway Park, if there's a bunch of, uh, if the Red Sox have a bunch of left-handed hitters that are just dead pull hitters, and they keep bringing the ball off of pesky pole, and they just get home run after home run that are 302 feet away, and other teams don't have the pull hitters, and they're trying to put the ball over the bullpen, which is the you know the furthest, the the, the deepest right field in the league, uh, you know the park effect for Fenway is going to appear to be a lot higher for home runs. Uh, for Red Sox hitters, you know th- those homers won't be homers on the road; they'll be foul balls. They're the ones that hit pesky pole. So even though they do flesh it out, there's still kind of a built for the park sort of thing that goes on there. So it's, it, I mean, that's kind of an extreme example. But you know, if a team has a lot of hitters that are, you know, uppercut swinging and driving fly balls. It, the the effect that it has at home may not equal the effect that it has on the road. Some of those home, you know, they're going to have a certain amount of homers on the road anyway. That are, that'll be homers regardless. Now these these homers are now what used to be outs in Oakland are now homers in Oakland. So uh, it it's it's not it doesn't impact. I don't like to use that word. Doesn't influence the home team and away team the same because one of the it's, it's sort of a different approach. It's hard to explain. But I guess you kind of either see it or you don't. But um, it's it, you know you flesh out as much as you can quality of team, but the, you can't flesh it all out. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and RotoWire. And Todd, we were talking about uh, surprising young players uh, in the pitchers at RotoWire. You looked at some rest of season pitcher projections, and I'm really curious about the Dodgers left-hander Alex Wood. There's lots to like here. As Stephen Nickrand here at Baseball HQ said, he's the most skilled starting pitcher in the National League during the last 12 months, taking into account last year's mm-hmm. post-All-Star with this year's pre. Even better than Kershaw and Scherzer, 11 strikeouts per nine, 65% ground ball rate on balls in play. Uh, I think 0.3 home runs per nine, something like that. And this year, a 167-089, uh, that's not too shabby either. And yet, you mm-hmm. have some reservations about Alex Wood. What's not to like? Well, there's a, <laughs> everything's to like. No, I think there's a, the, the couple concerns are, now he has pitched 180, 190 innings, innings in the past, but he didn't do it last year. He was sort of, uh, you know, injuries and bounced around last year. So there's a workload concern, especially since the Dodgers obviously have designs in the playoffs. And right now, unless they get a 
unless they trade for, uh, you know, I'd like to think a right-hander to put in between Kershaw and Wood. Wood's still going to be their second-best starter, but they, he may be third in their playoff rotation based upon how they line it up if they want to play that sort of game. But uh, I, so I, I, it's not, it's, I'm not worried about performance as far as fantasy goes. I just can't project him for the full, you know, if, if, a guy's, if, if, if Kershaw's going to get 90 innings or, you know, Scherzer's going to get 90 innings, Kluber 90 the rest of the season, I don't think it's fair or right to assume Wood's going to get the full, the full boat. I think the Dodgers will find a time to skip him or give six days rest or pull him early. I, guess I th- think they need to conserve him. And, you know, I, there's some, there's a slight amount of risk as far as uh, performance down the stretch, but I think that might be balanced by the fact that the Dodgers will probably, you know, slow him down. And, you know, head-to-head leagues, I don't, I don't see him being shut down. I think that's, you know, I don't think I'm breaking any groundbreaking news there. I just think that, you know, he, he will, you know, instead of getting 14 or 15 starts, he'll get 11 or 12, and the Dodgers will just smartly uh, plan it around, you know, an off day here and, you know, something like that. If there's maybe a rain out and they just skip him, something that that sort of thing. So the concern isn't performance. It's just uh, banking on a full a full boat of innings going forward. They could always put him on the 10-day DL. That's their favorite shenanigan with uh, as far as uh, pitching <laughs> rotations, isn't it? Yeah. You know what? I mean, you know, we, we've talked about it in fantasy. You know, if, if take advantage of the rules and, and if they change the rule, they change the rule. But until if they're not doing it, if it's not illegal, then it's not illegal, right? I mean, so... Is it immoral? I guess, but, uh, you know. I don't think anything's immoral as far as playing a a sport like this, but I do believe there's some kind of rule in the CBA or somewhere that says, you know, if the player's not legitimately injured, you can't put them on the DL, and they're coming up with some pretty spurious uh, uh, injuries when they make these uh, 10-day DL assignments. Yeah, and even one of their own guys, Ross Stripling, came out and uh, he probably wished he could take it back, but he came out and said, you know, last year, shoot for 10 days it was almost a month i was on the dl and i really wasn't hurt so yeah i think that you know there will be whether it's whether it's a you know whether they go to something like a couple you know why why you know why can't they have you know a a two-player you know if the if the idea is you know so some players can back earlier why can't you have a 10 and a 15 day dl and and limit it to two players in the 10 and everybody else in the 15 I, i think they'll come up with something uh the the commissioner's already come out well not already the commissioner came out and said he doesn't like the way some of the teams are gaming the new rules. So, I mean, you, you sort of see you need to be prescient. You know, we've talked about it when we when you set up fantasy league rules, you sort of need to be prescient and think about the repercussions. I'd like to think MLB thought it through. Um, you know, you got to say to yourself, what, teams are probably going to be doing this. Um, the thing is, not every you know the Dodgers are doing it. I don't think every team is doing it, but but still, I you know one one is one too many. So I do think we'll see some changes, but uh, yeah, for Wood, I'm not concerned at all. If I have him, um, you know, first of all, you, you've got a lot of bonus numbers in there already. You know, there has to be some. Again, there doesn't have to be, but you you should plan on some level of regression. But man, like 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 Nick says. This guy's out of sight. Earlier in the show, Nick and I talked about the trade possibilities in San Francisco as they fall out of the race, or they've fallen out of the race. One of the names that came up was Johnny Cueto of the Giants having a pretty bad year, but he's a pretty good pitcher overall. What's your take on Johnny Cueto for the balance of this year? Yeah, Cueto, and I wrote about this too, is, uh, you know, it's my job to, you know, to come up with, you know, what he, what's he going to do? Is he going to, you know, is he going to go left or going to go right? 
And Cueto, I just don't know. Uh, I talked about rest of season projections and how I have my rest of season projections. It's like exactly in the middle of what I originally expected and what he's doing now. And, you know, that's some of that's just math. But, you know, with Cueto, I'd like to, either he figures out what's doing wrong and he becomes the 3.0 ERA guy that he's always been, or he doesn't figure it out and he stays where he is, 4.4, 4.5, whatever it is. And I, and, you know, a lot of, you know, it's my, again, it's my job, you know, our job to, which way, Sozola, which way do you think he's going to go? I don't, I, I just, I don't know. With It's just so weird. I have no feel. And part of it is he's one of these guys that's, uh, you know, his control's a little off. His, he never was a huge strikeout guy, but he's actually up more home runs than normal, even in that park. So, you know, Tanaka has been able to fix the home run, Masahiro Tanaka, the home run issue. I, you know, is 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 Cueto going to be able to do it? I honestly don't have a feel. You know, I uh, I guess you know if if I had to make a bet, if I had a, you know, I, I don't think he's going to recover. I, I at this uh, just thinking it a little bit more. I think that there's something about he may be one of these guys that his his pitches just are just prone to this elevated swing because thinking about it, he's giving up all these homers in AT and T. So there's got to be something going on there. I don't know that he can just flip a switch and fix it. So I guess I'm concerned. But on the other hand, it's Johnny Cueto. He's got a history. He's, you know, he's, he's shown, he, I, you know, he's, to me, he was Mr. Reliable. You know, he was never going to, you know, have these 15 strikeout games, but his floor was silly. Right now is he doesn't have a floor anymore. So I guess, I'm, you know, I'm still in the middle, but I guess I'm leaning more towards uh, closer to what he is now than closer to what I expected. The biggest pitching surprise in the American League might be Jason Vargas of Kansas City, a career journeyman type who all of a sudden is among the elite mm. in the American League. You're not hugely optimistic about Jason Vargas either. Why not? I don't know. If I want, I'm not sort of hugely optimistic is the right way to put it because I'm actually uh, – I, I feel his numbers are, are somewhat sustainable. It's just what those numbers are. I, maybe, maybe it's because of my NFBC bias, but I want strikeouts from my starting pitchers, especially now. Uh, so, um, I, I don't see a huge uptick in the ratios. And I think, as you know, we mentioned before, we talked with, with Gene McCaffrey earlier in the week, Gene pointed out that Vargas works a little higher in the zone. So he, he, it may be serendipitous. I don't know, but he's not as, he's not giving up the homers that some of these guys are hitting. And the other factor, I think I wrote about this too, is he's only throwing the ball like 84, 85 miles an hour. So, you know, when he does have that ball up in the zone, uh, you got to supply the power, you know. It, it you 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 know. You got to not that these guys can't, but he's got a little bit of an advantage there. It's not as if someone's uh, going against a 95 mile an hour fastball where a lot of the power is supplied by the pitch. So you got to square up the ball that's up in the zone. So he may just be a, you know, serendipitous uh, beneficiary of, of of these new people trying to trying to uppercut the ball, and he throws the ball a little bit higher. It's not he doesn't work up in the zone. He works in the middle, the middle, middle part. So he just it may be harder to elevate his pitches, and I don't see that changing. But I also don't see him striking out a ton of batters either. So it's not so much I think he's going to get a ton of regression, and the RA is going to balloon. It's just that I I want my want strikeouts. So I it, maybe it's just because of the leagues I play in, I want more strikeouts than he's going to give. I liked your lead into your comment on Julio Tehran. You, some daily gamers are thumping their chests over their success stacking against Tehran when he's at home in Atlanta, and he has been terrible. 758 ERA, 160-something whip, uh, uh, 
OPS against is over 900, I believe. And on the road, 253 RA, 118 whip, 0.666 OPS against. It's like two different pitchers. And that park is supposed to be pretty tough for pitchers. So what's your beef with playing Julio Terran to keep being terrible at home? Uh, it's uh, it's more it's more of the the uh, the declaration that they know he stinks at home. It's been over I think like 46 innings, something in that range, not quite 50 innings. And you know, I'll also say that you know what he may stink at home. We just don't know it. So to me, it's it's more of the attitude that these guys have that they know it. They can you know they can categorically declare that Tehran stinks at home. And you know that that that's what bothers me more than anything else. And of course, they're they're you know, uh, you know, as the expression goes, you know, they're you know they're going scoreboard on me. They're they're taking it to the bank. They're they're winning. Uh, it's just he has not pitched well at home. And as you allude, uh, you know, the data is still out. It's it's only been what two and you know, three, th- uh, not even you know, a little over half the season. But it certainly looks like SunTrust Park is is playing friendly for lefties. And what we do know about Tehran is. He still has horrible splits. He, he uh, We talked about him in the first pitch forum tour back in the spring. As good as he is, if he could ever figure out how to get lefties out, he would just be be fantastic. He's not quite as successful against righties this year as he's been in the past, but he's still just terrible against lefties. So I think there's something to do with the park there because, you know, the park looks like it helps left-handed, pit, left-handed hitters, and he has trouble with them. But, I mean, in 40 innings, you cannot say that Tehran... Uh, is terrible at home. Uh, you know, and, and, you know. I kind of said that. I think. I think he has a, early next week. He's got a game at home against the Cubs. You know, I. I you know, it was somewhat tongue in cheek, but I'm. I'm going to do it because no one else is going to do it. I'm playing terror. I'm playing terror on in DFS that night, just because his ownership's going to be low, and I don't believe in that sample. I mean, another one, and this was pointed out to me today. Uh, Tanaka, Masahiro Tanaka, I mentioned him earlier. He's been terrible, terrible during the day. And just been lights out at night. <laughs> lights, lights out at night. Yeah. Uh, the, the joke yeah. was the, the guy that said the note. He was was he bitten by a vampire? No, I don't. You know, I, I'm not going to not play Tanaka on a, on Sunday afternoon. I'm not going to play him because he's going against the Red Sox and Fenway. But uh, you know, to me, you know, a, a sample like that it sounds good. It, it, you know, it's good research. I just don't think it's very actionable. The same with a Tehran at home. It sounds good. I don't think it's actionable. And the way these guys talk. They think it is actionable, and I don't know. That that bothers me more than anything else is that you keep score with how much money you win. They've won a lot of money, and, you know, I, it's, I'm not going to say despite of it, but uh, it's just uh, eh, that's what bothers me. It doesn't bother me that they win the money. It bothers me that they're sure that Tehran stinks at home. It's kind of like when you go to the racetrack and you spend a lot of effort trying to figure out who the favorite is and where you want to place your bet, and then some guy down the row from you cashes a $100 win ticket on a 30-to-1 shot because he liked the color of the of the jockey's silks or something like that. And he, yeah, th- this never yeah. fails me. A guy with red diamonds on his silks never <laughs> loses. You know, Come on. But he's cashing a $100 win ticket and you're not. It may be that Tehran stinks at home. I mean, I'm not going to say he doesn't. I don't know if he does. That's the thing. I don't. I. I can't. I'm not going to say he doesn't either. I don't know if he does. It's the data is not the sample is not sufficient to make that stringent a judgment. So that that that's that's what bugs me. And it, it has. It, it, it's not just DFS, but people make these decisions in in regular fantasy too. And it just uh, you know the idea being you you still need to be right more than you're wrong. And if this guy, whoever's winning the money in, on Tehran, are making these sort of picks, if they're using that same analysis on another player, 
well, you know what? They're not doing so well because it's not happening with that player. So if I press you and I say, okay, let's set an ERA of 4.00 for the balance of the season for Julio Tehran at home, you're going over or under 4.0? I'll take under. All right. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and DSPN and Rotowire. And uh, Todd, before I let you go, we're coming into the trading season in Major League Baseball, of course, and all kinds of fantasy players out there are trying to figure out their fab, how much to w- wager, how much to bid, how much not to bid, how to hoard, all of these considerations. Uh, first of all, how many big names do you think, not big names like Mike Trout or Aaron Judge or anything, but fantasy-relevant names of players, how many of those kinds of players do you figure will move at the deadline or before? You know, I don't know. I, I try to <laughs> – I know it's such a popular question this time of year. I, I sort of let these things for other people, and I and analyze when it happens. Um, and, I, and there's always far fewer than – you know, if I had – what's the expression? If I had a nickel for every player that would be flipped at the deadline sort of thing, um, I think there'll be few. This year is interesting in that the Na- it, 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 there's just so many teams competing in the National League uh, the players may be going over to there. It seems to have been the opposite in recent seasons. So, I think you know. I think it was. I think it was a, what, last year we had a bunch, and they were staggered. I think we we're already starting to see it with Quintana. I think we'll see a fair amount, and I also think we're going to see them staggered. I, I think we are going to see. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if someone else goes before, which is you know Friday now, before Sunday, so that you know Jose Quintana isn't the only big name that's available at the deadline. I think that makes Fab that much more interesting because people this weekend have to decide, well, is Quintana going to be the top player coming over to the NL? If I have the hammer, do I just take him? Maybe maybe I don't need a pitcher, uh, so I, I take a chance that a hitter comes over? Or do I, you know, burden, burden hand, so to speak, and just grab Quintana now, even if I don't necessarily need him, I keep him from the guy who does need him, and maybe I make a trade. Yeah, I like the idea of getting the the one in the hand worth be, being worth more than two in the bush because not only do, might, there might not be another guy, but also the guy you do get, you get an extra month of him, assuming that all the rest of the guys come over closer to the deadline or at the deadline, so you get, what, four or five starts right. out of Quintana that you're not going to get out of the pitcher that you pick up on August 1st. Uh, uh, and if you had to pick, uh, I don't know, two or three guys that you are pretty confident are going to be moved before the deadline, who might you look at? These names have been heard, but I try to, you know, if I if I say a name, it, I like there to be some logic behind it. So when I say Todd Frazier, um, I know Mancott is playing second base. I think his future is eventually at third, but I'd, you'd like to think the, the White Sox are clear a spot to try to play some more Mancata. Uh so I think Frazier could go. I think the uh, I think Oakland have got a bunch of young pitching coming up, and, and not that Sonny Gray is Sonny Gray is old, but he's on a little bit of a heater right now. This is the time to trade him at his uh, at his at his peak. Uh, I know our our colleague Derek Cardi uh, has talked about the catcher change really helping Gray, which if he gets traded may not help him. But I don't you know not everybody not a not every MLB manager GM reads Derek well they should. Uh, so uh, right now, I think you have to trade Gray at his peak. And I guess, I don't know, I, uh, I'm i not the biggest Garrett Cole fan, but I think that the price you could get for a Garrett Cole right now is probably pretty high, so it wouldn't shock me. And again, you know, the Pittsburgh's got some, uh, I know Glass now is not uh, performing up to par, but they do have some young pitchers to backfill. And again, Cole's not all that old. So if I had to pick three, it would be Gray, Frazier, and uh 
and Garrett Cole with, 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 with Gray probably being the most likely to move. All right, Todd Zola, thanks a million for your insights. As always, it's great fun to talk to you and to hear what you have to say. And we'll catch up with you again in two or three weeks. Rest your voice. Yeah, so that, looking at the calendar, it'll be right around deadline time. It will indeed. I'm looking forward to it again. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he's one of our favorite and regular guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's the Baseball HQ Radio commentaries. We have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. The fun is just beginning on Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, you guys. I know I like to tell you about all the great content at BaseballHQ.com, and this week is no exception. Here's just a sample of what's on the site this week. In playing time today, coverage of Jose Quintana's trade from both sides, Jung Ho Jong, Colby Rasmus, Chris with a C Davis, and many, many others. In Facts and Flukes, that spotlight piece we talked about earlier, Brandon Gavitt looking at change points. It's really cool stuff. And in the GM's office, the post-all-star BaseballHQ.com staff survey where Baseball HQ analysts vote on which first-half surgers they believe in, which poor first-halves were flukes, which new closers they trust, and a whole bunch more. Now you know what I'm going to say. BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's our playing time commentary. And here, with a look at trade deadline ripple effects facing the Phillies and the Mets, is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. The hot stove's getting hot, as we saw on Thursday when Jose Quintana was dealt across Chicago from the White Sox to the Cubs. It was a move speculated in Mike Shears' AL Central playing time tomorrow column just hours before it happened. Mike looked at the White Sox new rotation candidates to fill in behind Quintana, and it's currently free on the site. So this week we'll take a similar approach in the National League East, where Greg Pyron looked at some minor leaguers who might get major league playing time once the trade deadline dust settles. First for the Phillies, where Reese Hoskins is mashing at AAA Lehigh Valley to the tune of a 289 batting average, 385 on base, and 20 home runs and just 300 at bats. Hoskins made the top 50 on two of our five minor league writers' top 50 midseason prospect lists, and the 6'4", 225-pound, 24-year-old is showing that he's got little left to prove in the minors. With current Phillies first baseman Tommy Joseph rumored to be on the trading block, keep an eye out for Reese Hoskins as the nothing-to-lose Phillies will look to get him in their lineup down the stretch. And in Queens, the Mets should be looking to sell off veteran pieces like Lucas Duda, who might just also get hurt again. Uh, Such a move might open the door for Dominic Smith, who is our number 47 prospect on our midseason top 50 list. Smith slugging 500 with a 382 on base and 12 homers at hitter-friendly Las Vegas. He's a line drive hitter with a great hit tool that should make him a batting average and OBP threat with decent but not great power. So keep an eye on Reese Hoskins and Dominic Smith and other similar situations where a non-contender might make room for their better AAA prospects. The short-term risk is high, but impacts from these types will be felt down the stretch in redraft leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. 
Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are St. Louis first baseman Luke Voigt, Talked about him with Nick a while back and Milwaukee starting pitcher Brent Suter. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. This week, as we begin the second half of the 2017 season, we are here to remind you that sometimes big league dreams do come true. Take our first frequent flyer, Luke Voigt, for example. After growing up as a St. Louis Cardinals fan in nearby Wildwood, Missouri, 26-year-old first baseman Luke Voigt realized one of his childhood dreams when he made his Major League debut with the Cardinals on June 25th. Our own Jeremy Deloney in the June 26th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com described Luke Voigt as having brute raw power with above-average bat speed, who, despite his slugger status, doesn't whiff often. Indeed, Luke Voigt proved him right by batting 322 with 12 home runs at AAA prior to his call-up, and he has continued that trend by batting 316 with three home runs in his first 14 games for St. Louis. Then again, Luke Voigt was drafted by the Cardinals in the 22nd round in 2013, does not have the pedigree of many that one would see on a top prospect list, according to Jeremy Deloney. That's why Luke Voigt, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. But consider this. Phil Hertz of the July 12th edition of Plague Time Today at BaseballHQ.com suggests a Matt Carpenter playing second base may open some additional playing time for Luke Voigt at first base, despite the return of Colton Long. Not unlike the situation brewing in Milwaukee, where 27-year-old left-hander Brent Suter may have secured a rotation spot with his 2.96 ERA in 10 appearances for the Brewers, including three starts. In his first start of the season on June 13th versus the St. Louis Cardinals, Brent Suter found out he was starting just 35 minutes prior to the game when Brandon Woodruff, who was scheduled to make his Major League debut, was shelved after straining his right hamstring in warm-ups. Although he gave up three earned runs in four innings, the outing proved that Brent Suter is capable of making quick adjustments. In fact, he's gaining a reputation for making quick adjustments on the mound, perhaps a little too quick for some batters. His July 8th start against the New York Yankees, Aaron Judge wouldn't even step out of the batter's box in between pitches. Now that's a quick pitcher. Yet despite a career command ratio of 2.9 strikeouts to walks in the biters, a mark just slightly below our benchmark of 3 strikeouts to walks for baseball's best pitchers, Brent Suter is often overlooked in most leagues. Like Luke Voigt, Brent Suter was also a late-round draft pick, taken in the 31st round in 2012 by Milwaukee. However, you shouldn't wait as long as St. Louis and Milwaukee did to take both. Luke Voigt and Brent Suter, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is a Baseball HQ analyst and has our frequent flyers comment here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report. We rate the matchups on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets for you to start. Ratings of minus one or worse, well, they're strong bets to sit. Between the ones we call the wild card range, they're toss-ups and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Jeff Samarja and the resurgent Annabel Sanchez, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. 
Six of the nine recommended matchup ratings for this weekend favor the home team. American League All-Star Game starter Chris Sale tops our list with a 189 at home Saturday as Boston faces the New York Yankees. That arch-rivalry features a Sunday doubleheader. National League All-Star Game starter Max Scherzer is second with a 154 at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati on Sunday. Detroit's Sunday surprise, Anibal Sanchez has a 147 for his home outing versus Toronto. Colorado's Jeff Hoffman has a 136 in his Sunday start against the Mets at City Field. Madison Bumgarner makes his long-awaited return from the dirt bike trail with a 117 in San Diego on Saturday. In San Diego on Sunday, the Padres' Trevor Cahill takes a 111 into this weekend's marquee matchup for a home start against last weekend's marquee matchup man Jeff Sabarja. The Kansas City Royals' Danny Duffy has a 110 at home in Kauffman Stadium on Sunday to take on Texas. Breakout boy Jimmy Nelson sports a 108 Saturday as the Brew Crew hosts Philadelphia in Milwaukee's Miller Park. In Atlanta's new SunTrust Park on Sunday, Jaime Garcia gets a 107 against the visiting Arizona Diamondbacks. This weekend's Sunday surprise is Anibal Sanchez at his must-start matchup rating of 147. He's at home for Detroit versus Marco Estrada of Toronto, who has a matchup rating of minus 103. The Tigers have been in a tailspin, dropping 19 of their past 30 games and falling five slots to a season-low 24th in the USA Today Power Rankings of July 12. The Tigers score a half-run more per game than the Blue Jays and are seven wins better at home than Toronto is on the road. But the Detroiters are 11 games under 500 against right-handers and seven wins worse than Toronto against teams under 500. Since team comparisons don't explain Sanchez's matchup rating differential advantage of 250, let's see what his small sample size of four starts tells us. He began the season in the Tigers' bullpen, then went to AAA Toledo to stretch out as a starter. His PQS log reads 1, 3, 5, and 4, with the two PQS dominant starts at home. BaseballHQ.com analyst Stephen Nickran noted in his July 8 Pitcher Buyer's Guide column that since the second half of 2016, Sanchez has a dominance rate of 8.3 strikeouts per nine, a control rate of 2.3 walks per nine, a BPV of 104, and a Major League Best first pitch strike rate of 70%. His career reportedly resurrected by an improved changeup, 33-year-old Anibal Sanchez is a Sunday surprise at least worth streaming this weekend. Our marquee matchup features San Diego's Trevor Cahill and his recommended start matchup rating of 111 for his home outing Sunday versus last weekend's marquee matchup man, Jeff Samarja. Samarja has a matchup rating of 036 and is a wild card worth the risk this weekend. The Padres are Cahill's fourth major league team. He began his career with the Oakland A's and was an American League All-Star in 2010 at the age of 22, leading the league in games started the next season. He moved to the bullpen in Arizona, and the Cubs capitalized on his effectiveness in that role during their 2016 World Series championship run. Starting again for San Diego, Cahill has fared well in 51 innings over nine outings thus far, but he did miss nearly two months with a strange shoulder. Cahill is showing career second-best marks in first-pitch strike rate and whip, and career bests in dominance, command, swinging strike rate, expected ERA, and BPV. He had two PQS dominant efforts prior to his shoulder injury, both at home. And he's avoided any PQS disasters. Just as Sanchez's improvement coincides with the development of his changeup, mastering a new pitch has been at the heart of Cahill's rise as well. In 2016, Cahill had a swinging strike rate of 12% on his knuckle curve. In 2017, it's been almost doubled to 23%. In that July 8 Pitcher Buyer's Guide column, BaseballHQ.com analyst Stephen Nickran also lauded the 29-year-old Cahill's skills as a starting pitcher over the past 12 months. A dominance rate of 10.5 strikeouts per nine, a control rate of 3.7 walks per nine, a ground ball rate of 61%, and a BPV of 128. Nick Grant concluded, quote, if he can stay healthy, Cahill could deliver some surprising value in the second half, unquote. 
Some weekend wild cards worth a look include last week's Sunday surprise David Price at home against the Yankees this Sunday, Cleveland's Corey Kluber on Saturday in Oakland's pitcher-friendly Oco Coliseum, LA Dodgers all-star Alex Wood back in Miami's pitcher-friendly Marlins Park on Saturday, teammate Rich Hill there too on Sunday, and another pair of teammates, Tampa Bay's Alex Cobb Saturday and Chris Archer Sunday in pitcher-friendly Angel Stadium. Here's hoping you have nothing but second-half halos over the players in your lineups. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about degrees of Kelvin, how the save situation affects a closer's performance. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I love the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. In addition to providing plenty of smart, informed discussion about everything from the baseball commissioner's concern about misuse of the 10-day DL to fantasy trade ideas to alerts about new episodes of Baseball HQ Radio to players to look at for the rest of the season, you get the idea. The forums are a fantastic resource, and they're made all the better because there's no flaming, no trolling, no hostility, just a ton of mutual respect that makes our forums quite a few notches above the usual ones out there in the interwebs. The other day, I happened across a thread about Kelvin Herrera's odds of being traded. This interests me because I hope he is. I have Joaquin Soria on my roster, and some other KC proto-closers are still free agents in my league. As often happens, the thread veered out of its lane and turned into a discussion about Herrera's perceived poor performance in non-save situations. One poster noted that the Royals, and I quote, need to be careful pitching Herrera in non-save situations. The poster said that Herrera had given up eight runs in his previous six non-save situations, six of those runs in just two of the games, as we'll see in a minute. He also said, and again I quote, I've heard more than once about closers that seem to excel when in a save situation, but for whatever reason don't perform as well in non-save situations. Maybe this is just urban myth and the facts don't back it up. Another poster then suggested, quote, Herrera is what the old timers would call a gamer. He's at his best when the pressure is on and the game is on the line. Maybe it's psychological. And yet another poster said, What the first poster suggested seems to happen often enough that folks think there's something to it. Of course, what people, and specifically old-timers, believe doesn't prove anything. A surprising number of people still think the earth is flat. Fortunately, in many instances, and especially in baseball, we can use the stats to get a clearer picture. But before we get to the numbers, let me quickly discuss why anecdotal evidence has such appeal. It has to do with the availability heuristic. A heuristic is a mental shortcut or model we humans use to make sense of situations that might otherwise take a lot of time and effort to actually solve. Regular Master Notes readers might recall that I've discussed the work by the renowned team of Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who were pioneers in the area of behavioral economics. In their research, among many other things, they learned that ordinary people often assess the probabilities of events by how easily they can think of examples of those events, even when basic arithmetic or plain common sense says otherwise. Now, as cave people, this was a useful model to help us survive. Nowadays, though, we have many mechanisms to deliver examples, and certain kinds of events stay with us. That makes them available to us for all kinds of reasons. 
Unfortunately, most of the reasons don't reflect the actual probability, and in fact the events are often wildly unlikely. For example, heavy media coverage of crime and plane crashes, if it bleeds it leads, causes such events to be more available to people when the subject comes up, and they therefore greatly overestimate how frequently crime and plane crashes occur. Interestingly, and paradoxically, it's the actual infrequency of these events, the relative rarity that causes them to be memorable in the first place, that causes us to believe them to be frequent. And recency bias is a form of the availability heuristic because a recent event is more available than events that happened earlier. Now think how this availability heuristic might affect our perception of how often closers pitch poorly in non-save situations. A lousy outing by a top closer is rarer and therefore more extensively mentioned and remembered than his many clean ninth innings. We have an example right in the thread, with Herrera's string of allowing runs in non-save situations. In fact, the issue was more focused. Herrera gave up two runs in a flop on June the 5th and four earned runs a couple of days later, both in a series at home to the powerful Astros. The guy, quite possibly a Herrera owner, recalls these two blow-ups in those non-save situations. They are available to him, so he assumes that the examples support, or worse still, prove, the assertion. As I said, fortunately, it is easy to check the facts in this situation, so I did. And for Kelvin Herrera, at least, the numbers suggest he does indeed turn it up when saves are on the line. Herrera took over his closer after last year's break, so I went to his pages at BaseballReference.com and grabbed his game log data for 2016 after the break through the first part of this year up to the break. It's 67 appearances if you're keeping score at home. From there, it was pretty simple to calculate his stats for performances in save situations and not. I ignored outcomes like ERA and WHIP because of the variance caused by small samples, especially once the already small game log is further subdivided into various game contexts. I also chose not to look at leverage outcomes for much the same reason. Instead, I focused on per batter results, which I really like anyway, because they start with higher numbers in the denominator. In this case, 273 batters faced, which can be subdivided into cohorts that are still small, but are still mostly above 100. To set Herrera's overall level, during the period in question, he had a 25% strikeout rate, 4% walks, 31% ground balls, 19% line drives, and 21% fly balls. He had a 4% home run rate, and remember, these are all percentages of batters faced, not balls in play. He also had an overall 5.6 command ratio, that's 5 strikeouts for every walk. The first indication that he amps it up with a save is in that command ratio. In save situations, it's a whopping 11.3 strikeouts per walk. In non-save situations, 3.7. He had a 6-point edge in K rate, 28% in save situations, 22% in not, and a 3-point edge in walks, 3% versus 6. He also gave up two more points of home runs in non-save situations, 3% versus 5%. But we know that not all saves are equally difficult. The whole movement towards intelligent bullpen management actually depends on managers ignoring saves to focus on putting the best relievers in for the most important game situations. So I also parsed Herrera's performance by whether he was protecting leads of one run, which I called critical, or more than one run, which I called non-critical. And again, it turned out he was more effective when the heat was on.
Interestingly, someone in the thread also said he suspected reliever performance, and I quote, varies between high-pressure and low-pressure situations, which is not the same as saves versus non-save situations. He went on to say he found it hard to believe that Herrera, and I quote, can be expected to perform better in save situations, but worse in a high-pressure situation that falls outside the save opportunity definition. It is hard to believe, but it's true, at least for Herrera, at least over this relatively short run. Herrera's strikeout and walk rates in critical save situations with one-run leads was markedly better than in critical non-save situations, one-run leads or deficits or ties. His strikeout rate was 10 points higher, 34% to 24, his walk rate 4 points lower, and his command rate more than 9 points better, 12 strikeouts per walk in critical save games, 3.6 in critical non-save games. In fact, criticality in general played a distant second fiddle to save opportunity, as Herrera also pitched far better in non-critical save situations than in non-critical non-save situations. The save was the thing. Keep in mind, these samples are still quite small, and I plan to expand this study. I'm going to look at all the top closers in baseball over multiple years. I'm going to put this on my docket this offseason for an HQ research article. Be sure to look for it. In the meantime, remember the availability heuristic, and try not to depend too much on it. Oh, what about those anecdotal examples earlier? Well, for me, that's what they are. They're just anecdotal. But here is something curious. Including those two blow-ups, Herrera has allowed two or more earned runs in nine different appearances since becoming the KC closer. Eight of those nine times, and all four of the games with more than three runs allowed, came in non-save situations. Hey, I'm just saying. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just get over to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 28 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show. It was Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. You guys know Todd is a regular featured guest expert here at Baseball HQ Radio, and I'm always happy to talk with him. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator, Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Love those forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Close to a thousand followers. Help me out. Please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. And take a second to go to iTunes. Add to our 4.8 star rating. Really gets the boss's attention and helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. That's Joe Sheehan on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you next week.
So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.